Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. <clears throat> and don't forget the Facebook page. Steve Paulette puts a lot of time and effort into that Weekend Warrior Facebook page. You look for my, you type in Weekend Warrior, you look at the icon, click on it. You get a kick out of all the work that he puts in. Thank you, Steve Paulette. I miss you. I knew my guest, Mason Sherman, will be calling in at 8.15 to talk about zigzag, spinning, the energy to explode bowling pins because he's a professional bowler like none other. So many, over 100, 300 perfect games. He holds the bowling ball with both hands. He doesn't put his thumb in there. They spin the ball. It doesn't just make an arc as it goes down the lane. It zigzags both sides, left, right, left, right, boom. And when it hits those pins, it's like dynamite. And I can't wait to talk to him about the revolutionary new world of bowling. Who knew throwing a ball into pins could be revolutionized? But it is, like everything else. The mousetrap can be made better. The spinning, the zigzagging, that's what struck me most. So I started to think, all right, what am I going to talk about this Saturday, today, in the world of art, the world of sports, the world of surgery, that reminds me of zigzagging and spinning to make this explosion of energy? What happens? There you go, Jorge. Thank you. What happens when you zig when you should zag? When every all the geniuses tell you, uh-oh, don't do that. And you say, no, I'm going to do that. Great things happen when you do it a different way. And in the world of music, in my lifetime, when I think about zigzagging and doing it a different way with spin and energy... I think of this group from 1966 they're musicians. They're singers. But they get hired to be in a TV show. They've never played together before. They don't know who each of them is. But because the Beatles had such success as a musical group and then made a movie, A Hard Day's Night, Bob Rafelson, the TV com producer, said, we're going to copy that. We're going to make Beatles lookalikes and we're going to make a TV show about a band and basically follow that lead. The problem is it's not like the Beatles, John Lennon meeting Paul McCartney, then they, they hire George Harrison and Ringo Starr and start playing. They had to go to Germany, to Hamburg, and, you know, they, this is how you, the right way you do it, the typical way you become successful. Then you can make a movie about being the Beatles. But the zigzag is not. We're going to start with the TV show. We're going to start with the movie. And then we don't care about it. The, Ra the Rafelson, they didn't want these guys to actually be a real band. It's a made-up band. But what they didn't realize is the talent of these four guys that they brought together by happenstance became a band that was so beloved that they sold more records a couple of years in the 60s than the Beatles did. The story of Zigzag and Art and the Monkees is amazing. For a short time in the late 60s, the Monkees delivered some of the catchiest tunes the pop charts have ever seen. They were written by great songwriters like Carole King and Neil Diamond. Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart, got these great songwriters, wrote amazing songs. Yeah, we're about to hear Last Train to Clarksville, Bobby Hart telling you how he misheard the Beatles song, Paperback Writer. He thought it was 
take the last train. How the hell? He, he speaks English. How the hell did that happen? But he'll tell you. He misheard it. In 1964, the Beatles and their groundbreaking movie, A Hard Day's Night, were taking America by storm. Impressed by the irreverent tone of the film, two rookie TV producers, Bob Rafelson and Bert Schneider, began to develop a show about an American pop group trying to make their way in the music business. They advertised for four insane boys aged 17 to 21 to make up their new band. Oh, my God. Here's Rafelson telling you how he prefabricated, premeditated this murder. Then a line formed, and it was about, I don't know, 600 guys outside of Columbia Pictures. This was the start of an unusual casting process. It was very laid back, I remember. It was very casual. Their feet up on the couches, and there was pizza boxes, and uh, they had coffee cups everywhere. It's funny, he's been asking about you too. And I would sit and talk to them. A little while later, I called them. So what's the story? I said, we'll call you back. So how does it feel to be a monkey? I put down the phone, I said, excuse me just a second. Walked out of the office, I was sitting, yippee! <clears throat> Feels fine, thank you. Uh, what do we do next? Autumn 1965. The four monkeys were now in place. Former child stars Davy Jones and Mickey Dolenz were joined by budding musicians Peter Talk and Michael Nesmith. But it was prefabricated. It wasn't supposed to be. Mickey and I were the actors. Peter and Mike were the musicians. You know, when they said who's going to be the drummer, Mickey, you know, was the unfortunately the one that didn't step back. You know, we just left him standing. I didn't want to be the drummer. To prepare the boys for their new roles, 28-year-old comic actor Jim Frawley was brought on board. Well, I was hired to work for three months with these four guys who had never worked together before and to establish their relationships, uh, one with the other as improvised actors. They're trying to make the Beatles out of four total strangers. They don't even want them to play the music. Just be pretty faces. Can you imagine saying yes to that if you're an artist? But they did. And they made some of the best music. But I want you to hear the frustration. Also, the beauty of putting these four guys together. This is Bobby Hart. The way we worked with them is we would have everything prepared ahead of time. We'd call for either David or Mickey to come over. And they would put a vocal on in two or three takes. And that's what you still hear today. We'd cut, I think, 10 songs or so for the first album. We needed another song. And I heard just the fade out of the Beatles' new record. It just come out. Paperback. And I heard, take the last. I don't know why, but that's what I thought they were saying. And I said well, to myself, well, take the, it's got to be about a train. Take the last train. This is a song that's kind of Beatlesque, and so we need a riff. Mm. And uh, Louis Sheldon just, just went right into it. While musician Peter Talk enjoyed filming the TV show, making the records would lead to frustration and disappointment. Frustration because he zigzagged, but he hung in there. And ultimately, these guys were able to go on tour playing their own instruments. But listen to him talk about when he first shows up, they said, hey, what you bring your guitar for? We don't need you to play music. We already laid down the musical tracks. They said, we're having a recording session tonight. Come on in. So I brought my guitar in. They said, why would you bring in your guitar? Why don't I bring in my guitar? No, track's all done. I was devastated. What I didn't realize at the time was that the music was going to have to be cranked out in massive amounts and that we were going to have to have people who knew how to make music quickly and well uh, and on order. So these four guys became so famous because of this TV show. The music was so fantastic that they then said, screw you guys, we're going out as a band on tour. 
and sold out 200 concerts. 1967. The Monkees had a hit TV series and an increasing grip on the pop charts. They started a world tour, promoting a record on which they hadn't been allowed to play their own instruments. We hit the road in 67 as the cover band for our own album. We were a cover band. We played Monkees hits. <laughs> Monkees cover band. <laughs> We played 200 concerts with just the four of us. And these are four guys that are not supposed to play their own music. And they sold them out. And they changed the world because they zigzagged. They started with the TV show and then became a band, not the other way around like the Beatles in the Hard Day's Night. What about the energy you get in sports when you don't follow the rules? You don't do it the way you're supposed to. You're the best basketball player coming out of college but it's a different world in the 50s, 60, early 60s. The greatest basketball player I've ever seen was a Harlem Globetrotter named Curly Neal. And his story is the exact monkey story of zigzagging. Only the monkeys did it in art, in music. Curly Neal played basketball like nobody else to this day. He did things that Steph Curry, that Michael Jordan, that Kobe Bryant couldn't do. I want you to hear a little bit about the Curly Neal story with the Globetrotters. If you are of a certain age, there's only one man that comes to mind when you think of spinning a basketball on your finger or sliding to the floor while maintaining the dribble and going through the defender's legs all day. It was all mastered by Curly Neal. He was the man who controlled the ball as if it was on a string. After leaving college, Neil played an incredible 22 seasons with the Globetrotters, more than 6,000 games in nearly 100 countries. You want some perspective on that? 6,000 games equals just over 73 regular seasons in the NBA. So much for load management. <laughs> You're right. The Globetrotters were everywhere, and that meant something. Being on television and a pop culture icon back in the day? Now, for me, that begins in the 1970s, and you had to have talent. Your body of work had to mean something. This wasn't a reality TV world back then, and there definitely was not 6,000 channels and streaming services. We're talking about ABC and Chill. But there were the Trotters, dazzling people across the globe against the hapless Washington Generals. And just like the Monkees, TV allowed them to zigzag. And then showing up on Saturday morning cartoons. Does the name Scooby-Doo mean anything to you? Scooby and the gang didn't welcome a lot of guests onto their show, but those meddling kids had a soft spot for Curly. Neil and the other Globetrotters made three appearances on Scooby-Doo, and once it went into syndication, you might see them on any given day of the week. I know I surely did. They even had their own Hanna-Barbera cartoons, the Harlem Globetrotters, and later the Super Globetrotters. I want you now to hear from the man himself. What does it take to zigzag in your life? What does it sound like when you see it differently than what everybody else sees? Everywhere I go, yes. You know, everywhere? in the stores, yes, everywhere abroad. Uh, sometimes in the bathroom I had to sign an autograph. Look at that, I can get it so anybody can do this. Look at that. Got a smile on that. Okay, all right, yeah, you got it. It's dealing with children, you know, with Special Olympics, uh, handicapped kids, and giving something back to the community and, and telling the kids to stay in school and get educated first. Hank Bauer taught me this trick here four years ago. Just listen to the energy in that man's voice. You never make enough, you know. Believe it or not, when I first started, I was only making $700 a month playing with the Globetrotters. We was playing uh, about 300 games a year. So you can see that's about, about five, $6,000 a year. So About when you finished, 22 years later? 22 years later, my highest salary was $150,000, which is, you know, no money really. You know, but uh, I have a good family, I have good kids, and uh, I just try to spread joy throughout the world wherever I go. And, you know, maybe the money will come later. What Curly Neal did with his life by zigzagging is priceless. Money can't buy that. 
visiting 97 countries, meeting with the Pope, Queen Elizabeth. He was a globetrotter, and he played basketball like nobody else. Well, I was a small kid out of college, Johnson C. Smith University in Charlotte, North Carolina. I was drafted, you know, by uh, four other NBA teams, the New York Knicks, Detroit Pistons, the Baltimore Bullets, and the St. Louis Hawks, and the Fabulous Globetrotters. But as an NBA player, you know, you had to pay your own way, free agency, you know, you had to pay your uh, plane fare back and forth to camp. So the Globetrotters, Abe Sapstein, which was the owner, originator of the team, and uh, he invited me to camp in Chicago, Illinois, at DePaul University. And just like those kids lined up to become monkeys, they picked four out of uh, hundreds, 600 of them, Rafelson said. Listen to Curly Neal talk about. He saw the zag, not the zig, and he beat out 125 other people to be a globetrotter. Stan, 125 guys from all over the United States trying out for five positions. And you made it. As basketball players, I made it. I was one of the lucky five, and uh, the rest is history. Now, why do you think you stayed doing that? I mean, the money back then wasn't as great in the NBA back, you know, 45 years ago. Well, determination, dedication. I always wanted to be a professional basketball player, no matter who I played for, you know. So uh, I was a basketball player first. And then the learning of the hoopla, the spinning the ball on your finger, I had to learn that from my teammates, you know, Wilt, Meadowlock, Lemon, Geese, Osby, you know, the guys that played with me during those times. But he could still shoot the ball and make it from half court more frequently than even Steph Curry. And finally, there's this young girl in Chicago interviewing the great Curly Neal, and she just can't believe she's doing her research, and his name keeps coming up. Listen to this. Now, I'll admit, when I was doing my research on you today, I was Googling you, looking at news, and I found so many articles where they weren't about you, they were using you as an analogy. So this guy yes. can dribble like oh, yes. Curly Neal, or this guy is yes. almost as good as Curly Neal. So still have those analogies in present day today. How does that make you feel? It makes me feel wonderful, you know, just to know that I'm doing something good and, and having somebody follow me. And, you know, and, and it's, it's beautiful just to keep this organization going. You know, it's been eight or nine years now, and I hope it goes eight or nine more. It's fantastic. Zigzag. That's what Curly Neal did. He said no to the Knickerbockers, to the NBA. And he chose and went with the Harlem Globetrotters and made more of an impact on the world by doing that than he ever could have done as an NBA player. The Monkees prefabricated a made-up band, but they zigzagged into our lives and became more successful for a couple of years in the 60s, sold more records than the Beatles did. Yesterday in surgery, doing a hip replacement on a man who had a heart transplant. He's living with someone else's heart beating in his chest. That he could wear out his hip so that I could fix his hip is amazing. Zigzagging in life, the energy from spinning one way and then the other. Who would I learn this from? Who inspired me for today's show? My guest coming up next, the great Mason Sherman. Yep, it is about bowling, and we're going to get into it from a master. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. You're listening each and every Saturday, and thanks for telling your friends, your family. I love seeing the Weekend Warriors in the office during the week. It's fantastic. The wife is sitting there going, Dr. Clapper, he tortures me every Saturday. He retells the entire two hours. I love it. I just love it. All right, I'm joined now by a guest. I've been looking forward to talking to him all week, the great Mason Sherman. Mason, thanks so much for calling in. Appreciate it. Good morning. Thank you for having me, sir. What do you think about me talking about the monkeys in art and Curly Neal in sports as it relates to spinning a bowling ball? The the way that you are correlating bowling to oldies is quite impressive. And I grew up on oldies, so I, I like it. <laughs> Mason, teach us all. First of all, who are you? Where'd you grow up? What'd your father do for a living? And how did the world of bowling enter your life? So, good correlation there. My father introduced me to bowling when I was the ripe age of seven years old, back in the early 1990s. Uh, born and raised here in Southern California. 
Uh, grew up in Ventura County, went to Moorpark High School, got my bachelor's degree from Cal Lutheran University. Oh. Uh, and I've been bowling since I was seven, just having fun with it, bowling locally. And then it turned into a passion, started doing some tournaments, getting my feet wet, and started traveling around doing cool things like the Junior Amateur Tour, JAT out here in Southern California. They help support junior tournaments for kids looking to better their game. Started doing some regional professional bowling outside of college, uh, and then just continuing to be competitive, uh, and then kind of took a little step back when I had my first child in 2015, and uh, yeah, I, but I'm still start trying to stay competitive, stay relevant in the area, um, making sure to know what's going on, and helping kind of grow the game as much as possible. Unbelievable. Well, I'm very proud of you, because the whole idea of making your passion into your living is a zigzag in life, let alone what it is that you do with the ball teach us well first of all i want the listeners to know how many perfect games have you bowled a 300 games so that's all strikes and that's i have about over a hundred of them i i i to be honest stopped counting at some point um which a lot of people do um but you know the cool thing is when you have the first you know you're up in the 10th frame you have the first nine strikes the first shot of the 10th it's like okay i need that one the most nerve-wracking shot is actually the 11th shot because that gets you into the like the 290 range. That means you just need one more shot, throw it good, and you know let the bowling gods take care of it for you. So wow. the 11th shot, I find, is the most nerve-wracking, and I still get nervous every time I'm in that position, and that's, that's what keeps me going. Do you sit there and you go like you look at that last pin and you pray to God going, I don't know how, there's nothing near it, can it just fall on its own? Does that ever happen? Oh yeah, definitely. I've, I have several two ninety nines, so there there has been that heartbreak where it's the last shot. And it's like, come on, really? <laughs> That's amazing. Well, teach us a little bit about uh, Mason about bowling and how it has evolved over the last twenty five years. So one of the big introductions just a few years uh, further back than that was the introduction of reactive resin back in the early 90s. So that really kind of changed the game with where a, they were trying to create a chemical reaction with the cover stock of the bowling ball, so the outside of it. And that is to make it to where it kind of shudges through the oil on the lane, and as soon as it hits the dry boards where there isn't oil, it would have a reaction to actually start curving if you, started ha- if you had rotation on it. So that was the big introduction in the early 90s, and that kind of revolutionized, you know, being able to throw more strikes. Hmm. Because all you're trying to do in bowling is have the right entry angle. So you want your ball to enter the pocket, which is the 1-3, so the head pin that's closest to you, and if you're a right-hander, the pin right next to that. You want your ball to enter that, um, that portion of the pins at a six-degree angle. Hmm. You enter the pocket in that angle, you're going to get nine, or you're going to get strikes a lot. On the left side, it's going to be the one pin and the two pin, same thing. You want to enter at a six-degree angle. So by creating this reactive resin bowling ball and this, these cover stocks and these, and also they had cores, started putting cores in them. So think about core as engine and think about the cover stock as tires. Hmm. Um, as they have these different mixes and matches, they're creating more wobble, more spin, and it creates more pin action. Hmm. Mason, I remember reading, I don't know whether it was Tom Wolf, some sociologist commenter on society who said you knew that America was changing for the worst because of the less and less bowling leagues that were now existing. You know, when the Honeymooners and Ralph Cramden, Jackie Gleason, you know, he talked about going Tuesday nights to his bowling league, putting on his bowling shirt and taking his bowling ball to be in the leagues. And as America lost that, what is it with bowling as a sport that's different when you do it as a league, softball or tennis or something that you do, what is unique about bowling as it brings people together, both on the team and then to play against another team? It's, it's all about social interaction. Uh, it, it's, it's about creating relationships. It's having a good time. Even when you're doing bad, you can laugh at the good times. You can laugh at the bad times. I think of it like, you know, if I go golfing, I'm terrible at golf, but I have a great time. And I think a lot of people felt bowling was the same way because if you go and you get one strike, that could be your excitement for the entire time you're there for a couple hours, mm-hmm. and that's good enough. Mm-hmm. So I think get joining leagues and having that camaraderie, bowling together, all different styles, all different um, uh, different um, types of people, uh, you know, you can just come together and you all have one common goal. You're just trying to knock down some pins and have a good time. Maybe you have a drink, maybe you don't, maybe you take it a little too competitively and you just want to focus like I do. Um, 
But no, it, it brings people together. Some of my you know most cherished relationships, a lot of my most strong friendships, have stemmed from the bowling world. Mm. I, I you know going around those junior amateur t- tournaments when I was a kid. I'm still friends with a lot of those knuckleheads today, and we talk daily. And bowling is be- because of it, so it's pretty. It's a pretty awesome game. When I was growing up, the bowling alley was called Falcaros. I don't even know if that's a person's name or not, but the big deal was they gave you the piece of paper and they gave you a pencil, and you now had to do the scoring. <laughs> now I don't know when the day occurred, but I remember going bowling once, and that's it. Forget about it. you ain't getting a pencil, you ain't getting any piece of paper anymore. It's all on the computer, and it does the scoring actually for you. What a what a revolution that was! Tell us about the revolution in the equipment. Every aspect of it has changed. The I guess the lane and the pins haven't changed, but certainly there's a difference between the rental bowling ball and the bowling ball someone like you would use, Mason Sherman, to knock those pins down. Tell us a little bit about the difference. Absolutely, yeah. So when you go to a bowling alley, you're just grabbing one of the bowling balls off the racks. They all are drilled very generically, small, medium, large, extra large, and they're just this polyester cover with no core in them. They just have additional weight that get added to them based on the material that's put together. If you go into the pro shop in a bowling alley, you'll see a wall and plethora of you know different color bowling balls, different names, different companies, and they all are made with a certain purpose. The best way that I can compare it with bowling balls is going to a comparison of golf. You have different clubs for different situations. You want to have a seven iron for this situation. You want to have your pitching wedge for that situation. It's the same thing with bowling balls. They're all made to do a little bit of a different thing. So they have a different outer shell, which is the cover stock. Some of them are solids. Some of them are pearls. Some of them are dull. Some of them are shiny. But then also inside the bowling ball is what they have is the core. And that's really the engine that helps create more spin, more wobble, more pin action as it hits. And there's different varying levels of equipment. So you can have entry level where maybe it doesn't have the highest end technology, but it will get your feet wet and get you started to have a bowling ball that's quote-unquote reactive resin Mm. to get more hook, to get more spin, more wobble. Mm. And then as you continue to go up that line and say you get to the highest end equipment that there is where they can cost a couple hundred dollars at least, they get custom fitted for you in the pro shop, and the goal is for them to trudge and trudge and cut through all of the oil on the lane and still create that hook, create that wobble, and create that entry angle. So as you continue going up, you're going to get more hook out of the ball. Now, of course, you also need to understand how to hook a ball, which can be taught to you if you're a new you know, beginner in bowling, one of the pro shop operators, someone who gives lessons. There's all kinds of resources all over Southern California to be able to enhance your game. You know, I, I myself I love helping people. Well, it sounds like it, and we're going to get into how people can get a hold of you uh, in a second. As a son of a carpenter who just loves wood, what it looks like, what it smells like when you cut it, what the whole idea of inlaid wood looks like in in really high-level carpentry, tell us a little bit about the wood and the lane itself. What kind of wood do you use? What it goes into the inlaying and what is on the surface of it that makes the ball so slick when you roll it down the lane? So back in the day, you'll, it's hard to find them now, but there there was tried and true wood surfaces. And wood bowling lanes are kind of a thing of the past. There are still some centers that do have them. I remember when I was a kid going to Hawaii, and there was a bowling tournament out there, and half the lane was wood, and half of it was a synthetic composite material. Wow. So it was two lanes in one, basically, right at the center at 30 feet. It would change surfaces so it was really fascinating and interesting always being able to bowl there and seeing the differences that would create. But most of them now are a synthetic material. Uh, it is still some form of wood. Some of them are composite. Um, there's different names for them and different brands uh, across various bowling alleys. But what's interesting is as that material changes, you could take the oil that goes on the lane, which is what comes out of the lane machine to actually keep the uh, integrity of the lane up to par to make sure that it doesn't get damaged and to make sure that your ball can actually slide through it and go a certain distance before it starts its reaction. Similar to shuffleboard, you want to have your shuffleboard table covered in all that sawdust, right? So it can slide through. The bowling lane is very, very similar. So you put oil on the lane, the ball glides through, and it can help create more of a boomerang reaction down lane as the ball starts to hook and wobble and spin. Um, So depending on what center you walk into, it could be a number of various materials. Some are HPL, some are pro-anvil lane, and all of them are various different kinds of composite materials that make up the lane. The oils, there's a multitude of different oils as well, 
And not every center oils their lanes the same. They have different distances that you use, different viscosities, and different volumes. And that's why you could walk into five different bowling centers with your same bowling ball, and it'll do five different things just because of the nature of the characteristic of that center. I don't know a goddamn thing you're talking about, but I just love, <laughs> I just love the passion. I'm like talking to a vascular surgeon right now about what kind of vascular clips and Gore-Tex graft. It's like fantastic to hear you talk, Mason, about your love affair with something which happens to be bowling. Listen, can you hang on? Because I got to yeah. ask you about today's topic about spin and zigzagging, because I think it is a metaphor for all of us in our life, even if we don't bowl. Can you hang on? Absolutely. I look forward to it. All right, Mason. Hang on. Thanks so much. All right, Warriors. What a treat to talk to a passionate man, but wait till you hear what he tells us next about spinning and zigzag. This is what has inspired me for today's show. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warriors show here on 710 ESPN. The number is 877 877- 710 ESPN. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. Having so much fun talking about zigzagging in life, putting a spin on it. I don't care what you do for a living. You want to zigzag. You want to spin it. I'm a surgeon. That's what I want to do. Whether you're a chef, you're in sports, you're in music, zigzag. And the expert is my guest right now, the great Mason Sherman. Mason, when I grew up, that bowling ball had three holes, two fingers and the thumb, yes, and that's how you threw it down the lane. Not anymore, not your bowling ball. Teach us a little bit about what two-handed delivery is and the basics. Get us get us up to date in terms of what's going on and this whole idea where I watched you on the video you showed me where it went left, right, left, right, booming, and then it exploded like dynamite, the pins themselves. Teach us about your style and this technique you've developed. So I'm going to throw this out there. I actually do put my thumb in it. So as much as you saw my ball curve, I I only use one hand. But you are absolutely correct. The revolution in the last 15 years or so that's really come to the forefront of bowling is two-handed. And that's where a bowler will put their two middle fingers, so their, uh, their ring finger and their middle finger, inside two holes. And then they will not have a thumb hole and they'll put their second hand on it and they will basically cradle it back and they will roll it. Mm -hmm. And what that has created is exponential rev rate. So there's a lot more rotation on the ball to create that zigzag where they could stand as far left on the lane as possible, throw it as far right and still get it back to the head pin for a strike. Um, The other things that it's, it's mitigated is by not having your thumb in it, you can't really grab at the bowling ball. It's very smooth. It's, it's all about just getting it off your hand, and you can create this yo-yo effect with your two hands and taking it back and just really releasing it. It's almost like a down-facing Hadouken from Street Fighter where you just throw it at, into the lane and you can create an unlimited rotation. You know, so, some of the greatest bowlers on tour right now, Anthony Simonson, Jason Belmonte, um, Jesper Svensson, all those dudes are two-handed, and if you notice, the top, like the top half of the points leaders – in the PBA, the professional tour, are two-handed. It's, it's, it's a revolution, and it's, it's gaining traction. A lot of the kids now that are bowling, two-handed is the way to go. That's the way they're starting. But then there's all of the purists, of course, that still like the tried and true. Put your thumb in it the way you were taught, and you're, you're able to still you know do great things with having your thumb in the ball and even not having a ton of rev rate. So, yeah, the zigzag is absolutely relevant. And for two-handers, they do things to bowling balls that m- mere mortals just can't. Mm. Mason, it's just a joy to talk to you. Uh, And first of all, I have no idea who who Donk and Street Fighter is, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm still pronouncing it Tupac, okay? So there you go. (laughs) No comment. Exactly. Don't don't get old, but it's going to happen. I just would love... The Weekend Warriors to learn more about you and bowling and, and just the update. And your passion is just uh, just off the charts. It's just such a pleasure to listen to you talk. What Where can they get a hold of you? What should they download? What should they look at to get knowledge about the new world of bowling? Uh, there's a lot of Facebook groups as a starting point. Uh, one of them is being able to follow the local pro shop here where I live in Simi Valley, Bowl IQ. Uh, they're a great resource here in, locally, and actually we're starting up a big tournament club this month 
and it's going to be on January 23rd is the first inaugural tournament. Hmm. And every month there's going to be tournaments out here at Harley's Valley Bowl hmm. and be able to come down and compete singles tournaments, doubles tournaments, and there's going to be a points race. It's going to be fantastic. Um, I'll be at all the tournaments. I'm helping run them uh, with uh, my partner, Zarkov Butel, mm. and he's actually the owner of Bowl IQ. So that's a one way to get a hold of me. I'm active on Facebook. Um, you can look up any of the bowling groups. I'm part of them here in Southern California. Um, and you can always direct message me. I'm always an open book when it comes to bowling. I'll talk your ear off for hours on end and probably make them bleed. But I, I do love talking bowling. I love helping people. I love growing the game. Uh, and I want to give back to it because it's given so much to me. All right, Mason, it's my job to keep you healthy. I want to thank you for coming on board with us. It's such a pleasure to know you and to hear you speak. Even if it's something we're not going to do, it's nice to know that you can fall in love with something to the extent that you have. What a rich life you have. And thanks so much for really brightening our day today. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Dr. Lepper. I really appreciate it. Good luck, everyone. If you have any bowling questions, please reach out. All right. God bless you. The great Mason Sherman. Coming up next, Warriors, I'll take your calls. The number is 877-710-ESPN. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warriors show. Oh, it's so much fun. And we'll get into some clap revision coming up next. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. All right, let's open the clinic. Let's do some clap revision. The number is 877-710-ESPN, but the line's lit up. Let's go. Who do we go to first, uh, Jorge? We have Rashan in Bellflower. Rashan in Bellflower. You're on with Dr. Clapper. How can I help? Hi, Dr. Clapper. This is Rashan from Bellflower. Uh, I'm 39, and I've had two hip replacements. What kind of work you do? Uh, I was a youth car manager for Kia and Van Nuys up to last year in January, and then I quit because uh, a lot of mechanics that I used to deal with were getting sick, and I'm immunocompromised, so I decided to quit my job so I don't get sick and take the, the virus home, and my dad is immunocompromised, so I took a break for a year, cause, uh, and then last year my dad had a kidney transplant at Mayo Clinic in uh, in Phoenix, uh -huh. and then we got stuck out there for four months because he got an infection after Oi. the transplant. Oi. So we have taken a few trips back and forth, back and forth, uh, uh, and then we finally pushed everything to UCLA out here. He still has a little bit of abscene left, uh, and he was getting antibiotics at home for four months. It's been a long last year, yeah. Wow. What is it yeah, like to be... What is it like to be in the used car business? Oh, my God. You need to come on as a guest one day because that is a fascinating – because in the end, it, all it of us sure, have to – It sure is. At some point in our lives, we all have to become a used car salesman, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. I loved it. I'll go back again. I'll go back again. You know, my, my wife – my father-in-law, who may he rest in peace, was a very – beautiful man, uh, honorable, and, you know, I'm this street guy from Far Rockaway, New York, and I'm basically dating his daughter at the time, and uh -huh. he he warned my wife, uh, you may not, you better think twice about getting married to this guy, and uh, she said, why? She said, because he's able to sell a car for more than a used car salesman can sell it for. She goes, what? So basically, when I came out to Los Angeles in 1983 to do my internship in general surgery at Cedars, long time ago, okay. I, I, this, is, this is the thinking. When you, listen, when you don't have any money, this is how you have yeah. to think. So for the listeners who want to know what it's like, when you don't have any, this is how you have to think. So I'm going to be an intern. Whatever money you get paid, I got school loans. I, you know, nobody's taking care of me. I got to figure this all out. So I decided I'd get an apartment close to the hospital. Why? Because I'm going to buy a car cheap that if the right. car breaks down, I could always walk to work. This was my rationale. Exactly. Okay? Yeah. So what's the cheapest car I could buy? A Subaru. This is 1983. Nobody even knew right. what a Subaru was. A Subaru right. station wagon. I buy this car. Okay? okay? I figured, okay. hey, it's a Japanese car. Subaru, I think I heard of it. It was the cheapest car I could buy. I buy the car. And, of course, guess what? It's a Subaru. They're Japanese cars. They are fantastic cars. So I buy the Subaru station wagon from, I think it was like a rabbi's wife, uh, believe it or not, for like nothing. Okay. And I drive it figuring, okay, if it breaks down, I can always walk to work. Guess what? It never broke down. It was an amazing car. So now I've got to go back to New York 
um, and uh, I don't need a car anymore. So I go to figure in those days there's no Google, there's no Internet. Uh, the L.A. Times, I'm going to advertise the car in the L.A. Times. Right. But I, I realized that if I advertise to sell this car as a Subaru, no one's going to buy a Subaru. I'm the only idiot who would buy a Subaru. No one's going to buy a Subaru. So I advertise it as a Toyota station wagon, which, by the way, everybody okay. would want a Toyota station wagon. And Absolutely. I figured that every time the phone would ring, I would say to them, by the way, the newspaper made a mistake. It's really a, a Subaru, not a Toyota. But, you know, all the Japanese cars are the same. And people would go, no, they're not. And they'd hang up the phone until one guy said, you know, I think you're right. He came and he bought the car. And my father-in-law said, be careful with this guy. He can do stuff that a used car salesman can't even do. So I would say it's a very maligned profession. But you know what? You get to the rawness of life, yeah. right? Don't you doing yep. this? Yep, absolutely. I love it. Yeah, no, I, love I, it. Yeah. I can tell. I love the hours also. I put in 10, 12, 13 hours a day. I love it. Weekends, everything. Yes, you're helping people. When The, the ones that you want to help, the ones that want to bite your head off, you're not going to help them so fast, right? Exactly. Yeah. All right, how can I help exactly. you? What What's going on? It's my pleasure right. to get you back on, on board. Thank you, thank you. So I got diagnosed with the uh, condition called AVN back in 2007. Uh, and 2009, I had my first hip replacement at Cedar sinai back in uh, Baltimore, where I used to live in Maryland first. Hmm. Uh, but Dr. Michael Mond. Oh, so very famous. Very famous. Yes, absolutely. So he did both of my hip surgeries. So the right one he did was a resurfacing. Yes. And and then do you happen to remember do you do you know if he told you if it was a Birmingham hip what company was the resurfacing see I I don't make, remember it makes that. a very yeah. big difference to me because those the resurfacings that I do is called yeah. Smith and nephew the Birmingham hip there are okay. other companies but I didn't like those com- I don't like those companies apparently so, what I remember he said he came up with this technology. Yeah, well, or doing the hippie surfacing, so I don't know. But yeah. I could always pull my records. Yeah, call you, the I, I, I need to figure out what exactly uh, the the system that he used because it's a metal against metal prosthesis, and that's an issue. Right, right. So I can always get my the record from the Baltimore if I call them. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. then my left one started going back in 2015, and uh, he did. Uh, I can't pronounce his word right. He put the Kadaiva, a Kadaiva. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he did that in 2015, and in 2020, November or December, I did an extra again at Kaiser Permanente, and I told the left one's going bad again. Yeah, so... so I, can, I can bear the pain. That's not a problem. I'm used to pain, so... Mm-hmm. What, is the reason, what is the reason for your avascular necrosis? You're on prednisone? For what reason? I, so I was on prednisone. So 2005, I was getting chest pains. Come to find out, my both my kidneys are dying, mm-hmm. and they were scarred 70% once... The tissues were sent, the biopsy was done and sent to Mayo Clinic in Minneapolis. And they don't know why my kidneys died. So they gave me prednisone for three months and uh, to see if they could reverse the scarring, hmm. which it didn't. And I guess after three years, uh, AVN kicked into my body and here I am. Yeah. So I had All a right. kidney transplant. My mom gave me a kidney transplant. I had my transplant at the uh, University of Maryland Medical Center when I was 25. Hmm. Yeah. So well, that's why I'm So how can I help you? What's your question? Question is, I'm limping on the left-hand side. I have done the x-ray. You could kind of see the spacing again appearing. Should I get it done? Should I just wait it out till I can't? Or is it worth it? If it's keep, going to keep happening again and again? Yes, it probably will. But okay. you know what? The bottom line is, is if you're not that debilitated, just because we can do Mom. surgery doesn't mean you should have an operation. You know what I mean? Right. Here are the Absolutely. two. Here are the two reasons I would advise you about. To, by the way, there's a book I wrote with Lindy Yui called "Heal Your Hips." It's all about how to exercise in a pool to keep both of your hips strong and in shape to make the okay. one that had surgery last longer and to make you stronger and maybe avoid surgery or postpone surgery on the other one. It's holistic. There's no drugs. There's no side effects. Uh, belly button high water you walk forwards and backwards half an hour three days a week that will help you heal your hips that's the book i wrote with linda yui but okay here are the two tipping points for you to decide not the doctor not the surgeon of when to do surgery number one you roll over in bed three to four times your body weight goes through your hip it's going to wake you up from a deep sleep 
yes, mm-hmm. that it yes. would be a reason to now uh, say it's time to do oh, something. I do wake up. I do wake up three, four times a night, every night when I turn around. Yeah, I if, do that if, all it's, if it's keeping you from getting a good night's sleep, then that's a real reason to finally take care. Here's the second reason, a tipping okay. point, that if you now are starting to develop back pain, which we're really not great at operate on, to be honest with you. I you, have. You want to stay away from spine surgery. But if you're starting to ruin innocent bystander joints because of your hip, then to mm-hmm. me, then it's time to fix your hip. Those are the two okay. tipping points for you to think about. Please don't let them inject any cortisone, stem cells, oh, no. no needles into no. your hip joint ever. Get in the pool. No. It will make your recovery from surgery that much easier, and it will potentially allow you to postpone the procedure. The water will be invaluable. But those, I hope that helps. Those are two tipping points for you to think about. And you're right. I have those tipping points. Well, and then I you're ready. Then you're ready. I'll, okay. All right, young man. Thank you so much for your help, sir. Thank you so much. All right. God bless. Listen, you're a total stranger to me. Go find a total stranger today. Do something nice for them. That's how you'll be thanking me. I will, sir. Definitely. All right. God bless you. All right, Jorge. Who's next? The lines are lit up. Who you want to take? Let's go to JC in Ventura. JC in Ventura. You're on with Dr. Clapper. How can I help? Dr. Clapper. All right. um, My question is... How um, young are you? What do you do for a living? I'm 53 years old, and I'm retired now, but uh, what I do is I uh, drive for Lyft every once in a while. What did you do when you were working? I used to work offshore as a radiation technician. Wow. Or- NDT tech. Non-destructive testing. Wow. That's fantastic. All right, what's your sport? What do you love to do? <laughs> Well, I'm not really into any sports right now, but I weight train a lot. Hmm. So what happened is... By the way, way, JC, I just love your initials because I almost feel like I'm talking to Jesus Christ. Okay? Thank you. I get get that a lot. I get that a lot. Okay, cool. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So So, what happened is I've thrown on my back for the fourth time. Um, I had had the... uh, MRI and everything like that. They told me I have three herniated discs in my back. You're, but yeah. I don't I don't do anything like get an operation or nothing like that. I just let it self heal. Yeah, I start feeling better. Good. And I start feeling better. Hit the gym again. I feel fine. But it happens every year now, like on the button. And I'm wondering if there's anything else I could do to try to prevent that. Or yes. Yes. There are two, there are two things you can do, JC. To help yourself. Okay, you ready? Yeah. Do you listen to the show? You know what Clapper Vision is? All the time. All right, thank you. All right, appreciate it. Your spine at 53 years old, when you were 18, your spine was like a stack of Oreo cookies. The cookie was was the vertebral body, the bone. The cream filling is the disc. And when you're 18 years old, that cream filling is robust it's juicy it's moist it's a fresh oreo cookie my mouth is watering already but if you leave that cookie and stack of cookies out of the package for 20 years 30 years god bless the nabisco company they don't get moldy i've never seen a moldy oreo cookie because they put something in it to make it last forever but you know what will happen the cream filling will dry out it won't be that moist delicious cream filling anymore it's going to dry out. We have a fancy word in medicine called desiccation. The discs in a 53-year-old are not robust. And when we take an MRI, for example, we can actually see the water content and the, and the fluffy pillow looking like on the MRI of the disc itself. So you don't get herniated discs in a 53-year-old like an 18-year-old, because it just doesn't have the moisture, the juice wrapping around the collagen fibers that make up the disc. It dries out. So you get bone spurs, you get stenosis, you get you know rust in the pipes, if you will, but you don't get the same herniated disc. So you, JC, I love saying that. I'm going to keep saying that, even though I'm Jewish. You, you, you need to do two things. You need to, number one, Stop doing things you did when you were 30. I should trademark the term age your size. You have to exercise differently at this age 
than you did when you were 30. So stop with the heavy lifting. Stop with the running. No more lunges. No more squats. No more stair machines. No more weights for your legs. Just stop. Now, that doesn't mean you need to become a couch potato and do nothing. No. That's one thing you're doing. Delete the bad stuff. Now you need to increase the good stuff. What's the good stuff? The pool, the bike, the elliptical, core strengthening exercises like Pilates, yoga, Tai Chi. These are important things for you to do. Believe me, you're not making new muscles at 53 years old. You want to tone the muscles you have. But despite that, as you age, I'm 64, almost 65, I can tell you this. The muscles will start, you're going to shrink. You're going to become less toned just because of father time. But you can maintain what you have. Visualize Bruce Lee, right? That guy never lifted a weight in his life. Look at that guy. You can tone right. the muscles that you have. So delete the bad stuff and increase the nurturing stuff. That's how you're going to do battle with father time. And I applaud you. No epidurals, no spine surgery. Stay the hell away if you can. All right? All right, perfect. I love it. All right, young man. And God bless you. Listen, Ventura, you got to do me a favor. My favorite donut shop, Good Time Donuts. Go go say hi to Sue. Tell her you're a weekend warrior. Get that blueberry glazed donut. Oh, my God, my mouth is watering already. All right, JC. God bless you. I'm the only I'm the only doctor giving you a prescription to have a glazed donut. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that's gonna do for my waistline, but we'll do it. <laughs> God bless listen, you're a total stranger to me. Go find a total stranger today. Do something nice for them. That's how you'll be thanking me, JC. Absolutely. All right, God bless you. And you really are, because your name is JC, so there you go. All right, let's talk about next week. Next week I have a superstar. From the world of ESPN, her name is Heather Dinich. Nothing happens in college football other than Feinbaum and Heather Dinich. And Heather's going to be my guest next Saturday. I cannot believe that we got a hold of her. I got to thank Shelly Smith for getting me her number. But Heather is just awesome. She did a piece about Desmond Howard that was the one of the coolest, most artistic pieces I've ever seen about the Heisman Trophy, former Heisman Trophy winner who's now an analyst. But she reminds me of these courageous women in the world. Linda Yui is one of them. My wife is another one who are courageous in their craft. And I love Heather. So I'm thinking, where in sports, where in art do I see the Heather Dinich? Well, Bonnie Raitt, as a singer, is a storyteller like none other in the music business, like Heather. And in sports, Mary Carrillo, that woman. So probably I'm going to go after those two for next week as we talk to Heather Dinich. Until then, I'm going to leave you with Volare. And I will see you on the radio. Volare nel cielo infinito. Vol-